Greetings, and thank you for joining us for this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor of wherepeteris.com, and this is the conclusion of our two-part interview with British author and papal biographer Austin Ivory. Austin's upcoming book project is called Let Us Dream, The Path to a Better Future by Pope Francis. It will be available from Simon & Schuster on December 1st of this year. In part one of this interview, we spoke with Austin about Pope Francis' new encyclical, Fratelli Tutti. We also talked about the Pope's statements on civil unions. This time, we speak to Austin about Pope Francis and the process of selecting new cardinals, as well as some details about some of the men who were recently named. We also discuss how this book project with Pope Francis came about. Finally, we talk to Austin about the resistance to Pope Francis, as well as what Pope Francis plans to do in the years to come. Before we begin this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, I would like to make a special request. If you appreciate our work at Where Peter Is, and you've gotten something out of our articles and podcasts, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans or patrons to make a monthly contribution to support content creators. Running Where Peter Is is not free. Our apostolate has grown to the point where I have begun to work on it full time. If we are going to succeed, we need your help. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you very much for your generosity. We can't do it without you. So on Sunday, Pope Francis named 13 new cardinals in the Catholic Church. Nine of them are cardinal electors. It's a diverse group. Cardinal from Brunei, for example, apparently his diocese only has three priests. Mauro Gambetti, who's the Franciscan friar who oversees the sacred convent of Assisi, which is the monastery that's right next to the basilica. He is not a bishop, which along with Cardinal Michael Cherney is only the second under 80 non-bishop appointed as a cardinal since John the 23rd changed the rule back in 1962. Cardinals over 80 have been selected who were just priests, like Cardinal Avery Dulles is a famous example of that. And they actually waived the requirement of him having to get uh, Episcopal ordination. Cardinal Cherney was ordained a bishop on the eve of the consistory last year, So I expect that Father Gambetti will also be ordained to the episcopate significantly. And and this is something I wrote on Twitter, the symbolism of the selection of Cardinal Cherney, who has worked very hard in the areas of care for creation and integral human development, seemed to reflect the priorities of the Amazon Synod and Laudato Si. And likewise, Father Gambetti was there in Assisi when Pope Francis signed Fratelli Tutti, which was very much in the mode of St. Francis. So I think there's a symbolic significance there. However, the one I want to ask about is my own local ordinary, 
Archbishop Wilton Gregory, or now Cardinal Designate Wilton Gregory, who is the Archbishop of Washington. And he is the very first African-American cardinal in the history of the Catholic Church. Now, there have been other Black cardinals from, from Africa and other parts of the world, but this is the very first Black cardinal who is the descendant of American slaves. At this crucial point in American history, especially during this political polarization, in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter protests, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, in addition to Cardinal Gregory being a great man of the church and someone who served as a bishop for a very long time, this has a great symbolic significance. Do you think that, I guess it's, I guess it's a fair bet to say that Pope Francis was very cognizant of the symbolic significance of this selection, in addition to knowing him and knowing his work. But what, do you have any thoughts on that? You're closer uh, to the situation in the US church. Look, you know, Gregory is, is obviously a figure, uh, of course, the color of his skin matters at this time and the message and all that sense, but he's picked him not because of the color of his skin, but because of his extraordinary ministry in the US church over so many years on the front line of the abuse issue. Also, what he's done in Dallas was extraordinary. And, but I think above all, he's picked a man who is known uh, to have very little truck with the conservative religious populism represented by the Trump wing of the Republican Party. And Gregory's critique of Trump's use of the, the famous moment with the Knights of Columbus and so on, yeah, I think all that is very, very important uh, because it continues and reinforces Francis's conviction that the greatest enemy of effective evangelization in the US church is the addiction to power and the addiction to a right-wing family values agenda which is highly selective in, in its advocacy of Catholic teaching. And it's done great damage uh, to, to the witness of the church. So I think gently but firmly, Church Francis has been nudging the church in that direction. And I think what you get now in the US church, you know, you've got you know, Tobin in New York, Supich in Chicago, Gomez now president of the Bishops' Conference, Gregory in Washington. Yeah, you, you're beginning to see a, a very different kind of uh, US uh, Episcopal leadership emerge. And... Well, worth saying, by the way, that one of those who Francis also named a cardinal last Sunday is Father Raniero Cantalamesa, the preacher to the papal household, a uh, Franciscan friar long identified with the charismatic renewal, but also, of course, the man who Francis uh, sent to give a retreat to the U.S. bishops in Mundelein Seminary in Chicago in January, wasn't it January 2019 or right at the end of, uh, of 2018 after the, the torrid year with McCarrick and everything. And many U.S. bishops, yeah, I think came away quite transformed by that retreat. So I think there's a, there's a picture there. But look, in terms of the wider uh, impact of this uh, consistory, this round of cardinal of red hats, I think what you're seeing is the continuing reform of the College of Cardinals to make the cardinals you know, less Italian, less European, more reflective of the global South. So there's the usual kind of numbers game that we're, by looking at the picks, you can see the way things are going. And I think he's been very determined and very decisive in the remaking of that. The, the, the important thing about this consistory, in addition to everything else, is the continuation of this very clear policy of Francis's to not have what we might call traditional cardinal sees, that's to say major metropolitan second cities, but rather give red hats to people on the margins, the little David bishops, as I call them in 
wounded shepherd who represent the periphery in every sense, geographic, ecclesial, political, religious, and so on. And I think the real impact of these cardinal picks will be felt in the conclave. One of the myths I think that people think every time these consistories come around, uh, a certain group of journalists says, yes, look, Francis is remaking the College of Cardinals in his image, imposing it. He's really not. What he's doing is he's freeing up the College of Cardinals to engage in the broadest possible discernment at the next conclave. And can you imagine having these very eminent cardinals from major you know, cities in the Western world, major Catholic centers, you know, alongside these missionary <laughs> bishops, these guys from you know, Papua New Guinea and Brunei? It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a genuine discernment where they're all going to get together and say, one of us is going to be a pope. I think that's incredibly exciting to have that, to, to open up the discernment of the selection of the next pope in that way, arguably, will be, will be seen as Francis's greatest reform. There are two picks in particular that we haven't talked about yet, and I don't know if you have any insight into it, but the selections strike me, along with the selection of Archbishop Wilton Gregory, is that there's a healing effect behind the selection. He selected the Archbishop of Kigali in Rwanda, and the Archbishop of Santiago, Chile. Now, I have a friend who actually traveled to Rwanda on a mission trip and visited various churches and dioceses in Rwanda. And it's been 25 years since their genocide, or 24 years. And there's still a lot of pain, a lot of brokenness, a lot of fear, a lot of mistrust. Naming someone a cardinal isn't the solution to our problems, but I think it sheds some light on the church there. Similarly, Santiago, Chile, obviously, the bishops of Chile, unlike the bishops of the United States, they were flown into Rome, and they all issued their resignations, many of which were, were received. The former Archbishop of Santiago, who was originally on his Council of Cardinals, appears to have been one of the one of the most guilty of the cover-up of the abuse scandal there. Do you see that these two picks are maybe an indication, an encouragement of a new beginning or a path towards healing, or am I over-analyzing this? You're not over-analyzing, but I think it's, it's always a danger to say this cardinal was picked for that reason alone. I think it's a combination often of reasons. Uh, and in the two cases that you mentioned, I suspect rather different ones. I don't think Francis ever appoints a cardinal whom he does not recognize as being a great pastor, a great evangelizer, a person of prayer and so on. So these are clearly men who have struck him. He's got to know them. He's impressed by them. He thinks they should be part of the college. I don't know Cardinal-elect Cambanda of Kigali. I do know a little bit Ios of Santiago de Chile because I met him last year uh, in August when I was there. Uh, Ios, of course, was brought in as you say, into the uh, as Archbishop of Santiago, after the sea had been left vacant uh, for quite a long time, while this process of purification, purgation, one might say, went on, many bishops were stood down, and Francis replaced many of those bishops with with temporary stand-ins. And then he made he appointed ours, and everybody's very surprised because ours well, he's a Spanish bishop, he's not from Chile, and he was a missionary. He's a Franciscan a missionary Franciscan who, who had been in charge of a very small diocese. And this is typical of Francis. He'll often look to the periphery and he'll say, there's somebody who can, you know, and we bring him in 
and it, everybody gets very surprised and shocked and say, where did they, where did he come from? Clearly, ours has impressed Francis in the, is it two or three years that he's been Archbishop? And, and so by making him a Cardinal, he's signaling that the, the path of reform in the Chilean church is now underway. He feels confident enough to appoint a Cardinal. That's important. So I think there are lots of things going on in all of those picks. Yeah. You raise something interesting because I think a lot of Catholics aren't aware. Obviously, we have a nuncio and we have various papal delegates and people form people form reputations that get spread around. To what degree do you think Francis really knows the cardinals that he selects? Obviously, he's not best buddies, but you say something impresses him. Uh, like he doesn't pick somebody that he doesn't have an impression of is what you're is what you're suggesting. He's not relying on uh you know for for archbishop gregory he's not he's not totally relying on archbishop pierre's word he he knows something himself about archbishop gregory is that what you're saying how do you think that works well i i think um uh, for bishops he does rely very heavily he has to rely very heavily on the nuncios and on the advice of the congregation for bishops because by definition the pope can only ever know uh, a, a proportion of the bishops of the world remember that the us bishops as a body, only met the Pope as a body at the end of last year. For the first time in his whole pontificate, the logistical challenges of bishops knowing the Pope well, of course, are very great. I think in the case of cardinals, because we are only talking here about between 100 and 200 men, I, I think he always does have a personal relationship of some sort with them. Not necessarily that he knows them that well, but he's had his eye on them. And Francis is a great, in Argentina, the Jesuits say he, he could read people's hearts really well. And if you look at when the synods happen in Rome, particularly the synods, you can see often that Francis is scanning, <laughs> looking out for people. And people will, you know, somebody will say something in a synod which will really impress him and he'll make a point of going and talking to that person. So this is the discerning Pope. He's always looking out for those little signs. Because I think when it comes to appointing bishops, but particularly cardinals, he's very conscious of how David was selected in the Old Testament. You know, the older, the older siblings all line up with their qualifications, but it's actually the little shepherd who's, who isn't in the lineup who God wants. He's very aware of that and takes that very seriously. I do wonder, though, I want to challenge, I guess, his capacity of reading hearts based on a very recent occurrence, the forced resignation of Cardinal Betchew, who was, for all intents and purposes, for a while, he was basically the gatekeeper to Pope Francis. Then he was moved into the Congregation for Causes of Saints. He was the person who was chosen to do the spiritual oversight of the Order of Malta when the Cardinal Burke affair fallout happened. Obviously, Pope Francis regretted that decision what do you think may have happened in that process obviously he trusted him for a while but then lost i mean completely broke it when i say francis is a great reader of hearts i don't mean that he doesn't make bad appointments and he does sometimes and he's known among people close to him for sometimes putting too much trust in people so one of the things he will tend to do is he will trust people to do their job and he will give them the freedom if necessary to hang themselves and sometimes they do hang themselves. <laughs> and when he, you know, and I mean, in the case of Betchu, by the way, you know, let's not demonize him. I mean, Chris Lamb actually got to know Betchu quite well through interviewing him and so on. Uh, you know, a very, very effective guy in many ways. And, you know, Betchu was the substitute to the number two in the Secretariat of State 
trusted, I think, by Cardinal Parolin, the Secretary of State. I mean, people were aware, I think, at an early stage that Betchu was an opponent of Pell and so on. But then Pell had his problems. So, you know, I think I, I think it would be unreasonable for Francis to have to have known the degree to which Betchu had failed to live up to the Vatican's new standards of, of transparency. And it required a year-long investigation by Vatican magistrates to show the extent to, and we don't know what was in their report, but we do know that it was sufficient for Francis to call him into the office and sack him on the spot. And I think, you know, one could talk about Barros, one could talk about other appointments that Francis has made, which turn out to have been misjudgment. But I think that's inevitable. If you think about the number of people he has to appoint in the Vatican, as well as, you know, worldwide in terms of bishops, it's impossible for him to be able to know where, which way they're going to go. But the tendency is to trust them. And then when they fail, they accept the consequences. I'd like to turn a little bit of attention to your book, Austin. When we uh, spoke to you last time on the podcast, you talked to us about the interview that you published in Commonweal and in the tablet during Holy Week. I wonder if there was a little bit of uh, cloak and dagger going on because you were saying that you were a little surprised that Francis granted you this interview and how it came to you as a shock. Was, was the book already in process at that point or how did all of this come about? No, absolutely it wasn't. The idea for the book uh, did come out, it followed on from the Easter interview and it was partly the result of me reflecting on the Easter interview and thinking he had so many insights there, which I would have just loved to followed up, the flashes of intuition, which were not developed. And that I thought really the world needed to hear, but I didn't really have the courage to go back to him about it for quite a while, but it was really seeing the way that the Vatican uh, post COVID commission was cranking up and to see the ambition of its work and the depth of Francis's own reflections. I just felt he had a lot more to say and needed to say it. And so I contacted him and, and put him the idea of this book. And he very sweetly came back and said, uh, yes, I, I think we should do it. But I have to tell you uh, that I'm going to need a lot of help from you. You know, in other words, I just don't have the time to, to sit down and write. And so I'm going to need you. So we, from the very beginning, it was going to be a, a collaboration. And uh, so in many ways, the book is the result of what I might call a standard journalistic procedure of me asking him questions and him responding in the format of, he gave me quite long recorded responses to my question, which I then turned into a text, which he then worked on and so on. But actually it wasn't as simple as that because in part two, I very much actually started with texts of his, which he, I then asked him about, he worked on. So the book really is, I mean, it's very hard to, it's, it's really unique. It, I don't think there's any, ever been a papal book like it, that it is the fruit of, of this very intense collaboration in a very short space of time, because the publisher was determined that it should be out before Christmas. And in this, and it will be out on December the 1st, uh, and in this current COVID climate, it's very difficult to get books out quickly. It, 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 it was a huge effort on everybody's part. And the, another of the complexities of this book is that, again, which makes it really quite unique, is that we produced two original texts, one in English and one in Spanish, from which the other translations have been taken. So it's not like there was a Spanish original which I translated into English. In fact, Francis said to me early on, I think you should be drafting this in English because it's your mother language and you'll be able to express yourself with a greater creativity and then I can look at this. You know, so so for, we ended up really with these two texts that were sort of constantly interacting with each other. 
which itself was, again, <laughs> massively complicated given the time. But And then I suppose just one other thing to mention about it, which is extraordinary, is that so it is the result of our conversations, but it isn't a Q&A. So from the very beginning, the Pope is addressing the reader absolutely directly. And that comes about from originally me, uh, he was addressing me, but then the publisher, the editor rather, Simon Schuster in New York said to me, why is he just talking to you? Why can't he address everybody? And actually that worked much better. And he liked it. So it's a book where I don't appear, even though, even though I have a note at the end explaining something of the genesis of the book. But it's really 42,000 words of him addressing humanity directly. So very briefly, the news on it is it's out on the 1st of December, published by Simon Schuster in the US in English and in Spanish. So there's a Spanish edition for the North American market as well. In addition, of course, there's a Spanish edition and worldwide Spanish being published in Madrid. We also have editions coming out on December the 1st in Italian, in German, in French, Italian, German, uh, and French, exactly. So that's five. And then later will be lots of other languages, including Portuguese. It's been an extraordinary journey. And I'm actually, I can't really talk about the book yet in detail because it's all still, well, it's being printed at the moment and we're working all this out. But I'm convinced that it's going to come out now, it looks like, at an even darker time than when uh, we penned it. And I think it's going to feel like a very necessary torch being shone in a moment of great darkness for the world. So I have great hopes for the book as a, just as a, uh, to do what Francis does best, which is to bring hope uh, to humanity. How do you think this book is expected to be received? How do you think Francis wants this book to be received? Obviously, when Pope Benedict put out his, his interview books, it was fairly clear that these were very journalistic. Obviously, this book is journalistic in a way because you interviewed him. However, it's the Pope speaking directly to us. I assume that it's not formally going to be a part of the magisterium. Although if it gets published in the AAS next year, then maybe we'll all be surprised. But perhaps maybe it's how we might look at one of one of Cardinal Ratzinger's books or a a work of theology, a work of the Pope's pastoral vision. How I, this is an odd question, but what kind of authority or what I know you can't talk about it, but I would assume there are going to be some juicy bits in there that are going to make headlines. And just like this recent civil unions thing. It was an interview. It wasn't a formal change. However, it was what he thinks, and he is the Pope. Any insight on how on how we should receive um, it? I, I think it should be received as a love letter to the world, as the world's spiritual director sitting down with every one of us and saying, look, the world, we have a choice now. We can either go back or we can go forward. We can't stay the same. And to talk about, and here's what I really love about the book. Everybody, you know, from Obama to everybody's been talking about the crisis and what it all means. Every expert has a view on the post-corona world, a whole series of prescriptions. Francis actually tells us how to get there. He's interested in the process of conversion itself. How do we open ourselves to the graces that are on offer at this time? How do we resist the temptations and the obstacles that will prevent that conversion? So uh, that's what I think is beautiful about it is its spiritual direction at a very high global level, dealing with everything that we need to face right now, which is the way we live together, the way our society, our economy and our politics are constructed, why they've failed, 
the depth of our current crisis, ecological, economic, social, cultural. And I guess the, so that's the, I think partly it's his view of the world. He's looking at the world with the heart of the Good Shepherd, seeing things that we maybe don't want to see. So he's waking us up to realities that we don't want to face. And then he's inviting us to say, you know, let's go on a journey. How can we help make things different? But also how can we build the kind of unity and consensus that we need to move forward as a humanity? And then part three, I think, will really uh, surprise people. He's very personal in the book. So, and, and that's partly the effect of me saying to him, well, we need to hear from you and your life and tell us about what happened to you in Cordoba. Tell us about your own personal you know, periods of transformation. So I, I, yeah, he is very, he really opens up about himself, which I think he's not naturally somebody funny enough who opens up much. He's a very private person, but he does in this book. And I think that will surprise people. There's stuff on the synods and his own discernment of the sins, which is really extraordinary. And no Pope, I think, has ever spoken that way. And we were talking earlier about the isolated conscience. And again, I think that it's a very meaty book. And I <laughs> I know that people, my publishers, you know, okay, where's the news? What's the, going to be the headline here? Are we going to have this kind of civil unions type row about something he said? And I'm not sure, but it will create, I think, great waves. It'll have a big impact. But it's a very meaty text. I think you guys will devour it. And we, you will appreciate it. I think a lot of it is at a depth which will bypass some people, clearly. It will be obviously misinterpreted. Yes, it will be attacked. Yes. <laughs> but I do think it will also make a big impact. Uh, and I think many people will love it. And yeah, to me, you know, what matters in all of this is yeah, what is all this about? Why did I propose this book? Why do I do what I do? Why do you guys do what you do? We're all vehicles. We're all just instruments, aren't we? If through this book, the Pope speaks to the heart of people who are bewildered, suffering, confused, disoriented, unemployed. If the Pope can speak to their hearts and communicate something of what you know, God wants for them at this time in our world, I'll, be, I'll just be very happy and delighted. That matters to me much more you know, than, than what the critics might say or what Twitter accuses me of after this book. That's, that it's the pastoral impact of it, I think, that where I hope its greatest value will be had. That's my earnest hope and prayer for it. Going back to the critics, and this is opening up another can of worms, and I apologize. I don't know how much time you have. Something that we've been seeing in, at least in the United States, as, as the days of COVID have drawn on, we've been noticing even stronger resistance to Pope Francis, outspoken resistance to Pope Francis. We've had ordinaries of dioceses saying that the Pope has contradicted doctrine, not just Vigano and Burke and Schneider. It's not just these figures who don't have any, any real authority in the church. It's people at their parishes. I, I sent you a letter a couple of days ago that we received at where Peter is from, from a pastor in Kerala, India who said that this anti-Francis sentiment is widespread over there. And he's planning to start one in their a, a website in their native language. And I said, go ahead and, and translate anything from where Peter is, if you find it helpful. Brought on board a number of new contributors to the website and, and volunteers. And all of them have a story about how their Catholic community has bought into this Francis is a heretic, or Francis is a terrible Pope narrative. One of the reasons why I wrote the article I wrote in America Magazine 
about my relationship with my mother in relation to Pope Francis. Not that I didn't think my story was extraordinary. My mom wasn't an activist. She wasn't a public figure. She wasn't a big name. She wasn't spreading this antipathy towards the Pope. She was simply a regular devout Catholic who was influenced by these voices, was persuaded by these voices. I, I took different approaches. At first, I argued with her. When she got sick, I just stopped. I, I didn't engage. I just prayed. And the very last time I spoke to her about the faith, three or four days before she died, she said that Pope Francis had damaged her faith. I feel like, yes, we are making an impact. Yes, we are we are there for people who realize there's something wrong. Like I, I got a message from a priest one time who had been following along with all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden he opens up Taylor Marshall's infiltration book and realized to himself that it was a total hack job, that it was illogical, that it was poorly sourced and realized. And so he woke up, but I find for every person that wakes up, there are a hundred people who are being sucked into, for lack of a better word, this vortex of anti-Francis sentiment. And I don't see any real resistance to this occurring from the church. I believe it should be coming from the U.S. bishops. But as far as I can see, the bishops who turn against the Pope are being allowed to run free. As far as there's a blog post from a high-ranking official in the Archdiocese of New York that says the Pope is in error, and it's been sitting on that website. Back when I worked for the USCCB, back in the days of Benedict, if somebody had written, if, a, if an employee had written something like that about Pope Benedict, they would have been gone within 10 minutes. And instead, this is allowed to, oh, it just has a disclaimer that it's his personal opinion on the website. I, and, he's, and apparently he's been emailing it out widely as well. A few people in the archdiocese have let me know this. I'm just, I'm very concerned that, the, and I guess this is the one thing it says, does Archbishop Pierre realize this? Does Pope Francis realize this? Yes, on a broad level, Pope Francis is a great pastor. These ideas are dangerous. Don't pay attention to them. But when it's my loved ones, and my story is mild compared to people who have been ridiculed by their families, who have been ostracized from their parishes, who have been called out by their clergy. I know of priests who support Francis, who have been called and emailed and, and had private meetings with parishioners who want to educate them about how Pope Francis is a heretic. It's like the church has lost all control of this problem. And it grieves me because, yes, Pope Francis is speaking the truth. He's proposing a better way, but it's not penetrating. And those who are directly in opposition to him seem to be emboldened, growing, becoming more deranged, as we've seen with, with Archbishop Vigano. I, I don't know if, if you've thought about this or if it affects you in the same personal way, but... Okay. I think you know, we've had these conversations, but I think the danger is that you spend too much time you know, focused on these people and their rants and uh, the people who get caught up in them. We are talking here really about very small numbers of people. They're loud, they're vociferous, they're angry, and I don't doubt that they're not influential. And indeed, some of them have a lot of money as well. 
just look, just stand back and look at it with faith, as it were, in the working out of all of this. Look at, it's the same names coming up over and over. Look at where Burke is now, or Vigano, or where, where are they? Where were they a few years ago? Where are they now? Francis you know, wants a church that, as I said earlier, is mature is, and, and that is adult. And it's free. We are free in the church. If you want to rant against the Pope, you're free to do it. Sure, the guy, I was deeply shocked by the, by the Archdiocese of New York allowing the senior official to write this. Apart from anything, it was you know, illiterate nonsense. It was theologically completely. I, I was shocked by that. But then I've long since given up being shocked at what you know, some diocesan officials say and believe, because sometimes it's very shocking. And I think ultimately you've got to say, where do we need to put our effort? And I think we can get too focused on the institution and I, I think over time these things work themselves out. When I go to parishes, when I speak about Francis to ordinary people, I don't find this at all. I do find always some people who are confused by this, that, the other, and they want to know. But generally, I people come up to me and they say, "We just love him. We think he's 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 he he brings the gospel alive to us." He's and I think that visceral heart connection that people have, which ordinary Catholics have with the Pope, I think has grown deeper and deeper over time. But just these are the parishes that are invited. Okay, and I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, and by the way, on my US tour last year, I, I had a couple of encounters with people ranting at me. Interestingly, clergy, actually. I'm really not underestimating it. And you guys in the States, in North America, you have much more of this, obviously, because you're more, you're more religious than we are over here. But, uh, the, and I'm really not underestimating, but I'm saying there is a danger in getting caught up in it. And I think we need to remember who is, you know, ultimately, it's the people of God. I've come to believe more and more, Francis has taught me, the church is not so much this institution or institution, it's the people of God, the ordinary people of God who know Christ, and you know, they're confident to walk in Francis's footsteps. They're not accusing him of anything. They know he makes mistakes. They know he asks forgiveness for his mistakes. Uh, and they see him as their guide and as the successor of St. Peter. And I think, you know, ultimately that's, I think as this pontificate goes on, I think you're seeing more and more of that. And I think the opposition is more and more revealing itself to be motive driven by spirit, let, let us say, which is not of God. I, I guess the, the only thing I'm, I'm thinking about is what comes next for the church. Uh, but I, I know none of us can predict this. None of us know where things are heading. It's too much to even think about what's going to happen next year or just getting through this year has been such a task and just so much going on. This is in a way the context of, of, of Letter Stream of my book as well. Yeah, in many ways, this was supposed to be the year in which Francis wound down. The reform cycle was going to be maturing this year. And in many ways, you see it has. I think Fratelli Tutti is probably going to be his last uh, encyclical. I think there'll be other teaching documents. But you can see you know, the new constitution for the cure is going to be implemented next year. The financial reforms. So one can make a whole big list. He had a five-year plan, it became a seven-year plan, and it was due to come to an end around now. And I think Francis, a bit like 2012, when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires, he was saying, you know what, I'll probably be hanging up my hat soon, because he thinks that he's a great planner and everything. And then we had COVID, and COVID has completely energized him. Uh, and he now sees everything he's been saying, everything a parasita was saying, you know, suddenly as being becoming very vivid, the choice, as it were, facing the church and humanity. COVID has made it all suddenly very vivid, and he's been enormously energized by it. That's when you pick up Letter's Dream, you, you will not see a Pope who's nearing you know, the end. You'll see a Pope who's got a whole new mission to prepare the world for this post-COVID era. 
And that's really the, the note I want to end on. This is a Pope who's always, I think, open to the next mission. And I see him now. And I, by the way, saw him. I want to uh, add that. I saw him at the end of September in Rome. And I, I found him an extraordinarily good Nick, as we say in England. He, he was full of energy, full of life. He's got a bad hip. He suffers from this and that. But he's in physically very good shape and full of energy. The only thing I wish is that many people are saying this to him is please wear your mask more <laughs> because COVID is getting close to him as it's getting close to all of us. But I see, I see the Pope as having a mission that's going to take us well into next year in terms of defining the new era that's upon us. Yeah, I have a friend who calls Pope Francis the Pope of, oh, and another thing, because <laughs> when, when something happens, Fratelli Tutti comes out, well then, oh, and another thing, here's, here's a new slate of cardinals, here's a statement about civil unions. And so the God of surprises is at work in the church. That trip to Rome we didn't mention you actually ran into Claire, Claire Navarro and Pedro Gabriel, our, our friends, right? And I did, and I didn't know till I had pizza with them on the Borgo Pio that their, their marriage resulted from where Peter is. I had no idea. Yeah, I'm, you know, there are about six or seven cult couples that I introduced to each other, not as a matchmaker, but just because I network with people and then they find each other. So I have sort of a, a sixth sense. If you're looking for someone, it's a good idea to become my friend because then I can facilitate a, a, a new social pool for you too, <laughs> even from around the world. I think I hope people are listening to this. Go, sign up to read where Peter is, not just to become extremely well informed about this pontificate you know, where the church is going, but there could well be an opportunity there for you to find a lifelong partner. How's that? All from one website. Excellent. Yes, that's absolutely true. And the formal matchmaking service will commence in 2021. Is that the more expensive Patreon option? That you'll that's find right. Husband and wife search. We're in the process of building up some infrastructure. Finally, we've got some great new people that are helping us, some new copy editors, which, is, which has been a real grace. So I think, I think things are headed in a good direction with where Peter is. We're, we've put out some really good stuff that I'm proud of. I seem to be going from strength to strength, and uh, I just think particularly over the civil unions recently, there was frankly no better source for reliable, clever, smart analysis, uh, well-informed analysis. So no, I think all strength, all strength to you, and uh, if I can continue to help in any way, let me know. Once again, on behalf of where Peter is, David Lafferty and myself, Mike Lewis, we really want to thank you for joining us, especially at this really interesting time in the church where a lot is going on both on our side of the pond and, and over in Europe and in Rome. It's always great to talk to you. It's been great to be with you, Mike and David, as ever, and carry on the great work. Thank you very much. You as well. You as well. Yeah. Until next time, God bless and take care. Thank you.